Well, two matters that I want to bring to the attention of the church before I pray is, uh, number one, this afternoon at four o'clock, Pastor Brian will be leading a prayer meeting in regards to our next church plant that will be launching on January 14th. It's coming up very quickly, and it's a time for prayer and also a time for information. And so whenever I have somebody tell me, uh, why haven't you guys said anything about the church plant yet? Well, we are. Every month there is this special meeting, and Brian leads that. And so I would encourage you to be here today in the fellowship hall at four to find out more information about that. In addition to that, uh, I received word on Friday morning, early Friday morning, many of you know uh, Thomas and Nikki Hale, who have been visiting our church for quite a while, uh, that Nikki went into labor, uh, her water broke, and as of to this moment, as far as I know, there is not a baby yet. So we're talking 72 hours uh, at this point. So let's make sure we remember them in prayer right now as well. Please join me. Lord, it just seems like you have orchestrated and ordained today's events in just such a wonderful way that we clearly see your providence. Lord, we lift up Thomas and Nikki to you. We lift up baby Lewis to you, Lord, as he comes into the world, that, Lord, you are reminding us of just how precious life is. And Lord, even in the midst of that, as we welcome new life into this world, we are also reminded on a day or a weekend like this, where originally it was to celebrate life, loss of life, sacrifices that were made, that on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, that war would cease, and that, Lord, it was the hope that it would be the war that would end all wars, and that peace would reign in the land. Lord, simply such hope for that should remind us that peace will only come when your Son comes, and that, Lord, we long for the day of Christ's arrival, and that, Lord, you have given us this time now to learn to be reconciled to you through your Son, Jesus, so that, Lord, we might experience peace even in tumultuous times like we're experiencing in our day. And so, Lord, we pray that as we get ready to delve into your word, as your Holy Spirit comes among us to teach us through your word, we pray, Lord, the truth that's imparted from this would be a balm to our souls, that it would increase our faith in the holy, magnificent God that you are, and that our trust, our faith, should be in you and you alone. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, it has been a while since we have been in Genesis. I'm very grateful for Pastor Brian and Pastor Daniel filling in while I've been traveling and and giving me a break to concentrate on working with the youth. But Lord willing, in the weeks ahead, I hope to complete the Abrahamic narrative here before turning our attention to the Incarnation in December. So let's jump into that this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. This is found on page 15 of your Pew Bible. We have two distinct sections in front of us this morning. The first concerns a treaty with Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And the second is perhaps one of the most famous Old Testament stories of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
Now, the first of these seems oddly placed. If you remember, our previous scene in chapter 21 was when Hagar and Ishmael were dismissed from Abraham's family after the teenager Ishmael picked on the toddler Isaac. Sarah insisted that Abraham get rid of her servant and his son, and the two were turned away into the wilderness of Beersheba. They were about to die of thirst when they were supernaturally led by the Lord to a well. Both were saved, and we read in verse 20 of how God made good on his promise to Abraham and Hagar that Ishmael would prosper too. So now we enter into a story regarding that well, and some commentators think that this narrative is misplaced, that it should have come before chapter 21, verse 1, to explain how the well came to be. I'm not so sure about that, even though it does give us the backstory as to why this area is called Beersheba. The narrator begins verse 22 with the words, at that time. Now, I don't think he would be careless to write those words unless he meant at around the same time Hagar was turned away. Now, I believe this for two reasons. One is that the well was already in existence before it was named. And two, the first words of the next chapter, after these things, will prove to be vital to what transpires then. Now, I'll explain a little bit more about that later when we get there. But between verses 22 and 34, we have two events, the treaty with Abimelech and the dispute over the well. And I believe this story is strategically placed here to demonstrate the prominence of Abraham. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, along with the general of his army, come to Abraham seeking peace. Gerar was about 17 miles northwest of Beersheba. And if you remember back in chapter 20, Abraham tried to portray Sarah as his sister because he feared Abimelech might kill him and seize his possessions. Back then, he was at the mercy of Abimelech, and he, Abimelech, was seen as the stronger one. But under the supervision of God, things have changed since then. Not only by this time has Abraham prospered with with numerous servants and livestock, but Abimelech recognizes the reason why. Abraham's God is with him in all that he does. Abimelech, the king, approaches Abraham, whom he views now as the greater figure, seeking future peace from the man that is dwelling in his land. What a turn of events. Abraham now has the greater prestige. Abimelech asked Abraham to treat him kindly in verse 23. That word kindly is the Hebrew word hesed, which is usually referred to as a covenantal love, sometimes translated as steadfast love or loving kindness in our English Bibles. Don't miss what Abimelech is saying here. Please treat me in the future with loving kindness as I treated you since you entered my land. Remember back in chapter 20, Abimelech was wronged by Abraham when he did not claim Sarah as his wife, but pawned her off as his sister. Abimelech is asking for future grace from Abraham just as he had extended it to him. And Abraham agrees to this, and it will have some consequences in Joshua chapter 9 later on. So this treaty is already in place before the dispute over the well breaks out between the two men. The well was dug by Abraham's workers, and Abimelech's men seized it. 
in verse 25, the ESV has the right translation when it says, Abraham reproved Abimelech for this. Abimelech once again claims innocence by ignorance, just as he did back in chapter 20. So Abraham gives him a gift of livestock, a gift of seven lambs to Abimelech for the well, even though he was the one that dug it. If Abimelech takes them, he is obligated to acknowledge Abraham's right to it. And he does. And the two men make a covenant over it. In a roundabout way, Abimelech is acknowledging that Abraham has a right to live in the kingdom of Gerar, and in addition has water rights here for his flock. All for seven female lambs. The name Beersheba is a play on words. It can be translated as well of the oath or well of the seven. And if you would like to see an artist interpretation of this, there is a lovely picture of it hanging in Pastor Daniel's office alongside of his Christmas decorations that I would encourage you to drop by and look at later. Abraham even takes the opportunity to plant a shade tree here over the well for future generations, and he worships Yahweh, the everlasting God, on that spot. Remember, calling on the name of the Lord is a technical term for worship. Even according to Abimelech's testimony, God has greatly blessed Abraham, and Abraham worships the God who has kept his promise to make his name great. So we might ask, well, what are the results of this little interlude here? Well, I think there are four points to note here. First and foremost, God has already provided a well that will bless Hagar and Ishmael in their distress. Remember, it was Abraham and his men that dug the well. God's sovereignty is of such an extent that he doesn't just do things on the fly. He has a purposeful plan. Just as Ephesians 1 tells us, before the foundation of the world, God set his plan into motion. In his biography of Charles Spurgeon, Louis Drummond tells the story of an evangelist who went to visit a dying woman in an obscure part of London. He wanted to be able to present the gospel to her so that she would be able to know Christ before she died. But when he got there and he visited the woman, he discovered that she already knew the gospel and had trusted in Jesus. And the evangelist asked her, how did you come across this? How did you hear about this? How did you find out about this? And she pointed to some paper that was tacked up on her wall, and she said, I read it on this piece of paper. And the evangelist looked at it, and it was a sermon written by Charles Spurgeon that had been printed in a paper. And he asked her, how did you come across this sermon? And she said, it came from a package from Australia, and it was wrapped in that newspaper. That is how God works. God sets things into motion that even though the man who preached that sermon was in London, she found out about it from an indirect way through God's providence, and it saved her. That is our God. That is how mighty he is. Second, this well of Beersheba becomes a landmark of the southern border of the monarchy under David. It marks the boundary of the land that was given to Abraham's descendants and are legally entitled to. Third, we see Abraham here as the greater figure. This sojourner who has no land of his own yet has kings already seeking his peace. 
And lastly, we see Abraham reciprocating his esteem back to Yahweh in worship. God is blessing him. Therefore, Abraham continues to acknowledge that the Lord is the one that is doing this. And this is important as we move into chapter 22. So now let's move on to the next chapter. It contains three sections here. The presentation of a test, the compliance of the test, and the approval of the compliance. So that's the presentation of a test, the compliance of the test, and the approval of the compliance. The three most important words of chapter 22 are here in verse 1. After these things. After these things. The Lord is getting ready to test Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice Isaac. But this test is not coming without previous knowledge of Yahweh and what he is like. It's not just coming out of the blue. We saw these same words back in chapter 15, verse 1, when God formalized his covenant with Abraham. That promise came after Abraham knew what kind of God Yahweh was. And the same is going on with this new test of Abraham's faith. This call to sacrifice Isaac comes after Abraham was at the pinnacle of his career and kings sought his favor. It came after he had dismissed Ishmael and Hagar, and the Lord protected Ishmael just as he said he would. It came after Sarah produced a son at age 90, and he at age 100. It came after his deception of Abimelech, and God rescued Sarah once again. It came after the angel of the Lord promised that Isaac would be born, and exactly one year later, and he was. It came after God had rescued Lot from Sodom. It came after Abraham and Sarah had jeopardized the holy promise by trying to produce an heir through Hagar. It came after God took the consequences of the formal covenant upon himself saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my word. It came after Abraham had rescued Lot from the clutches of Ketelamar, one of the greatest tyrants in the region. It came after God rescued Sarah from Pharaoh and Abraham and Sarah walked away with treasures from Egypt. And it came after God's initial calling of Abraham back in chapter 12 where he promised to make a great nation from Abram and bless his name out of all the people on the earth. It was only after these things that this test came upon Abraham. Now, I think Abraham has some reason here to be able to trust God. And the test is given here in verses 1 and 2. Yahweh tells Abraham to take his son, now his only son, after Ishmael is sent away, the one whom Abraham loves, to a mountain in Moriah that God will show him and offer him as a burnt offering. The Hebrew word here is holocaust. It means burnt offering. It's why we refer to that period of the Nazis and their persecution of the Jews as the holocaust. This test sounds similar to God's initial calling. Abram, give up your family and your homeland and go to a land that I will show you. Here it is, give up your son and your legacy and go to a mountain which I will show you. This command is specific to Abraham. He must be the one to do it. He cannot send Isaac away with servants. This must be done by his hand. The mountain in Moriah, which is identified later in the scriptures as what will become the city of Jerusalem, 
was 50 miles or a three days journey from Beersheba. This is the test that God requires of Abraham. Now, we know it is a time of testing, and we know how it turns out. But Abraham at this point does not. All he knows is he is to be obedient to God's instructions. And in verse 3, we begin to see the compliance with the test. It seems like the narrator deliberately makes this three-day narrative somewhat slow. Abraham rises early in the morning to prepare for the trip. He gets two men to assist him on the journey. He gathers the wood for the fire. After all, he doesn't know if there's going to be dry wood in the place that the Lord will show him. And in verse 4, after the third day, he sees the mountain from afar that he is supposed to go to, and he orders his men to stay put while he and Isaac complete the rest of the journey. And Abraham pronounces some startling words here. He tells the men in verse 5 that he and the boy are going to worship, and then they will return to the men. Abraham knows he is to sacrifice Isaac, but here he says he will return with him. Hebrews 11 and Romans 4 reveal that Abraham had faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead if need be. After all, Yahweh made a promise to Abraham, and he always keeps his promises. So Abraham gives Isaac the wood on which he will burn him to carry. And Abraham carries a torch in one hand and a knife in the other. Abraham is carrying the instruments of his son's destruction. Again, this is something only Abraham can do. The pathos of the moment just seems so intense, doesn't it? As they they make the climb, Isaac notices something is missing here. Wood for the altar, fire, a knife, but no sacrifice. And Abraham assures him that Yahweh will provide the lamb for the holocaust. Father and son climb the mountain side by side by themselves. God must still be speaking to Abraham alone. He he recognizes a precise place where he is to build the altar, and Abraham does. And he arranges the wood. And then he binds Isaac, and he lays him on top of the wood. Again, slow and methodical by the narrator. It leaves the reader here just saying and wanting to shout, Don't do it, Abraham! Run! Get away from there! Each instance is a moment where Abraham's faith could fail. We feel the tension of it. We're not told if Abraham threatened Isaac to get on the altar or if Isaac willingly laid down and trusted his dad. All we know that is in verse 10, Abraham has the knife ready to plunge down into his only remaining son, and that is when the angel of the Lord speaks from heaven, and he says, Abraham, Abraham. Remember, translated, again, that would be father of multitudes, father of many. And Abraham says, here I am. And he tells him to stop, not to harm the boy, because he knows that Abraham fears God and would not withhold his precious son from Yahweh. And Yahweh keeps his word. He demanded a sacrifice from Abraham. And he does provide another offering. There is a ram caught in the bush. And in verse 13, Abraham offered the ram as a holocaust instead of his son. That word translated as instead is actually 
the first time the word for substitute is used. This is the first time a substitute offering is made instead of what was originally desired. And Abraham names the place. He calls it Yahweh will provide. Notice he doesn't name it, I passed the test, or Abraham was faithful. He calls it the Lord will provide. A sacrifice was demanded from Abraham and a sacrifice was made provided by Yahweh. It is so significant that Moses reveals, reveals in his writing here, even to this, his day, the day that he was writing in, what would later be called Jerusalem was called on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And we finish with the approval of Abraham's clients here. God speaks again. And because of Abraham's proven faithfulness, he promises that he will bless Abraham and multiply his seed. Notice that the offspring here is singular. It is seed, not seeds. Paul's going to make a strong argument why it is singular in his letter to the Galatians. He will say the offspring comes through faith. His offspring shall be numerous, well protected, and will bless all the nations of the earth. And God swears this by himself because there is nothing higher than himself. Therefore, this promise is guaranteed. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 puts it this way, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, it is which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God doesn't lie. That's promise number one. God, number two here is that Jesus completed all that was needed for salvation. That's the point of the writer of Hebrews, that when God says this, you can trust it because he is sworn by himself. This promise that Abraham has grown to trust in from the start after uh, he first was called in chapter 12 has started to prove itself to him. God guarantees it by swearing upon himself, all because Abraham obeyed with complete faith. Abraham returned to his men and the party, and all four of them returned back to Beersheba, just as Abraham said would happen back in verse 5. So what are we to make of this? What can we say about this test of Abraham? Was this cruel of God? Was this cruel of Abraham to do to his son? Why is this event so important that it's often cited in the New Testament? Well, in closing, let me just provide you with three results that can be used as an application here. First, this place on Mount Moriah becomes a place of substitution or the place of atonement. It will become a place where even King David must give an account of himself for his power senses to prove how strong he was. 
If you remember in that scene, David had a choice of punishment. He could either take the punishment upon himself or his people could be punished with a plague. And instead, David, instead of taking it upon himself, David chose to give the punishment to be inflicted upon his people. And he was ordered, in order to stop it, to purchase the land, the threshing floor, where the temple was going to be built in order to be the future temple, where future sacrifices would be made. And of course, this place will become the place where the Lord Jesus will offer himself on the cross to atone for the sins of all who place their faith in him. This king, this king Jesus, chose to take the penalty upon himself rather than to inflict his people. Mark these words, folks. That event, Jesus on the cross, on the place of atonement, is the only thing that can save you. It's the only thing that can make you right with God. We are told in the scriptures it was a once-for-all transaction that it only happened through the Son of God, Jesus, and that your faith must be placed in Him. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing else you can choose. It is only through what Jesus did on the cross. There is no other atonement other than the blood of Jesus. Second, we see this revealing the sanctification of Abraham and the growth of his faith. Abraham, in the past, repeatedly put himself in positions where he doubted God's plan. Rather than trust God in the land that that he had promised to Abraham, remember Abraham flees to Egypt when a famine came. Rather than trust God's protection, twice he pawned off his wife as his sister to kings. Rather than trust that God would would bring a son through Sarah, this couple concocted a plan to have a surrogate son through Hagar. And both of them will laugh when God says he's going to bring them a son in their old age. God has been growing Abraham's faith. And by this time in the story, Abraham completely trusts God with his most prized possession, his treasure, his son. But that brings us to our third point and perhaps the most important. At each turn of events, God has proven himself faithful. He told Abraham that he would bless him by being with him, make his name great, and that all people of the world would be blessed through him. And he has been true to his word. Every word that came out of the mouth of God has proven to be true. Every promise has been realized. It's not Abraham's faith that keeps him secure. It's God's sovereign will. This is important, folks. This is what I want you to get from this. Your relationship with God is not based on how strong your faith is at any given moment. It is based upon what God has already done for you and what he has purposed in his will for you. It's much like the test of Job. Remember, Satan said Job would curse God if his blessings would be removed. But God ordained that Job would not fail. 
We see all these horrible events happen to Job by Satan's hand. But Job still refused to curse God. All he wants to know is, why is this happening to me? And those final chapters of the book reveal the power and the majesty of Yahweh where the reader understands, Job, this is not about you. It has never been about you and how faithful you are. It is about the God who has you in his hand and nothing can remove you from his grasp. That's the power here. Brothers and sisters, think about how practical this is in our lives. It's a simple question. Can we trust this God with our souls? Can we trust this God with our children's souls, with our grandchildren's souls? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things? Is this not what God has been teaching you all these years? Is there war and conflict in the land? He says, you can trust me. Is there disease and famine and pandemics? (laughs) You can trust me. Is there life-threatening illnesses and death approaching? You can trust me. Is Satan crouching at your door with all the demonic to oppose you? He says, you can trust me because whatever is my will, it shall come about. And here's the truth of the matter. How can we know that God is faithful unless we go through times of testing? How do we know how strong He is, how invincible He is, how sufficient He is in every scenario unless the tests that He gives us are exceedingly difficult? I can witness Abraham's test and say, yes and amen, Abraham, but I also must exercise my faith as well. This past week alone, I had my own test. I had to entrust my daughter to another man. Little pervert. (laughs) No, I love love my son-in-law. I love my son-in-law. It was a moment of God asking, do you trust me? We had sickness in our home this week. We were miserable. It was a moment of God asking, do you trust me? I had a friend going through a great difficulty. His marriage is hanging by a string. It was a moment of God asking, do you trust me? I had another friend face a significant surgery. It was a moment of God asking, do you trust me? Some of you have gone through battles that I can't even imagine. Losing a spouse, losing a loved one, battling cancer, watching a parent deteriorate before your eyes. And every test is a moment of God asking, do you trust me? And even as we lay in our beds and we breathe our last breath, it will be a moment for you saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Since I was under the weather this past week, I got some reading done. I read this wonderful autobiography of Pauline Hamilton. Uh, She was a missionary to China through OMF. She gave 33 years of her life opening up her home to Chinese gang members, both men and women, sharing the gospel with them, and calling them the hope of China. And they were converted by the gospel, and many of them became leaders in the Taiwanese church. Well, towards the end of her career, she was told while she was serving in Taiwan, unexpectedly, went in for a routine test and told, you have cancer. You're going to die in three months. And so I'm reading here about what her response was to this. She said, people's reactions to my illness were interesting. 
As I've been sharing the news that I had terminal cancer, quite frankly with friends and fellow workers right from the first, I took our next OMF prayer meeting as an opportunity to explain what the doctors had told me and to testify to the peace the Lord had given. I began to hear a sniff here and a snuffle there, and suddenly the, quote, down atmosphere struck me as funny. Here was a group of 15 or so missionaries who would all say and mean it that, it would, that to be absent from the body and present with the Lord is far better. We're a funny lot, I observed. We say how wonderful it would be to go and be with the Lord now when someone has her ticket bought and is on the way on the train, in fact, and we sit and cry. She knew exactly where she was going. And her faith and her trust was that. And here's how I know that to be true. It's not just because Abraham's test. It's not just because of Job's test. It's not because of the testimony here of Pauline Hamilton. It's because something greater than Abraham came. God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life as a perfect sacrifice, and he himself suffered in my place. And this God said on the cross, it is finished. The God who never lies said it is finished. And his rising from the grave proves that he conquered sin and death. Every word of the Lord has proven true. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I have experienced it. Our God knows the outcome, and he has secured it with the sacrifice of his son. So when I fear, when I feel the accusations of Satan, when I feel the temptation, and even when I give in to the temptation, I know it's not based on my performance. It's based upon what God has declared he will do through his son, Jesus. Because what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our father Abraham, the one who truly is the representative of faith for us this morning. That you have brought Abraham to a point in his life where he could totally trust you. I know he probably had fear and trepidation as these moments came because he didn't know exactly how things would turn out. But Lord, you guided him in such a way that towards the end of his life, his sanctification showed and demonstrated that his faith was completely in you and that he had learned finally to trust you. Lord, as a better example, to look on the Lord Jesus, who as the God-man completely obeyed you in faith, who endured persecution, who endured beatings, torture, being nailed on a cross, and having his life taken from him by the very people he came to save. And through that, he was completely faithful to you, obedient to you, trusting in you by saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because Christ has done everything that has been 
needed for us to be secure before you, to be reconciled before you, Lord. We have hope in every situation. If we are facing our own trial right now, we know, Lord, that you have already gone before us to secure our destiny. We know, Lord, that when we are facing temptation and even in the moments when we might fail, you have already secured our place because of Christ. We know, Lord, that as we battle the forces of darkness in this world, the victory is already sure. The battle has already been won. We know this because Christ has accomplished it. So therefore, Lord, turn our eyes towards Christ. Let our hope be in that. Let every person, Lord, who feels the despair of the moment know because of Jesus, there is always hope. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.